my role models were people around me right watching them progress you yeah. know watching guys you know get up and walking or you know get to the end of their discharge and actually walk out of that hospital and i'm thinking that's what i want to do i yeah. want to walk out of here with a jumper on a pair of trousers on and no one even know what's happened to me yeah you know which is some of these guys you know who were doing it i just thought you know that's amazing yeah so i used yeah i used people around me other soldiers as, as my um you know, if I was having a bad day, thinking, oh, Private Smith over there, he, he did amazing the other week, you know, yeah. used his energy to make yeah. myself feel better. So, yeah. yeah. Welcome to the latest episode of the Resilience Toolbox. Known as the art of recovering from an incident, resilience is crucial to human coping mechanisms following a life event, traumatic or negative experience, or simply everyday struggles. Not only does it shape how we bounce back, it also affects the way we think, feel and act in everyday situations. Today I'm joined by Mike Lewis, who's going to be chatting with me about the importance of resilience following major trauma and being medically discharged from the army, as well as life as an amputee and the importance of community and role models. In 2008, Mike was a corporal serving in Afghanistan within the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment. On his second tour, with only six weeks to serve until returning home, he was engaged by enemy forces, but hit by British artillery during an intense firefight. He was left with blast wounds which nearly severed his arm, shrapnel wounds to his left knee, and blast wounds to his right leg, which led to a below-knee amputation. His dream of serving in the British Armed Forces came to an end. Determined to not allow his amputation to dictate his life, Mike began setting new goals and has now achieved some incredible life moments, including a mechanic and racer in the British Touring Car Championships, completing mud runs and charity races, in particular fundraising for the British Legion and numerous boxing challenges in the ring. He's a big believer in progress, not perfection, and I'm delighted to be chatting to him today about the progress he has made and the part resilience has played. So um, I think it's important to start by saying that we're recording under social distancing measures, so I can just about see you over there at the other side of the room. Yep, just about, yep. Um, so if you don't mind, can we obviously start to where all this journey or fresh journey for you started, please? And okay, yeah, so uh, like you said, Helen, sort of back in 2008, um, I was serving with the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment uh, as, a, as a corporal, so as a section commander in charge of seven riflemen um, in Afghanistan, Helmand Province. Um we was five months into the tour uh, and a new, uh, a new set of orders had come down that um, they wanted to get a new turbine into the Kajaki Dam, which meant that the locals would have more power, as in more electricity, mm -hmm. to grow crops rather than growing poppies for heroin for the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to give back to the local people, win the hearts and minds that we were there to help them as well as get rid of the, get rid of the, uh, the Taliban. Yeah. Um, this turbine um, could only be sort of manned by I think it's four people in the world that know how to use this particular type of dam up in Kajaki. Um obviously if it fell into Taliban hands, um it's they probably wouldn't know how to use it, but no. the embarrassment would be obviously to get it back off them. Um sure. but this turbine wasn't just a case of a small little generator, it's sort of broken down to sort of thirty-four load load lorries. So massive convoy going all the way down in uh Camp Bastion had to go all up to the Kajaki Dam. So you're looking at covering sort of an area sort of say going from uh, Kent all the way up to sort of Norwich so quite a long way 
for this convoy to go. Obviously, quite a well-trained, dedicated enemy that would love to get hold of it. Mm. So that our job was basically to push the Taliban back to allow this turbine to get up to its destination so it could be fitted into the dam to give the, to give the local people power. Uh, on August 25th, um, 2008, the order came down for us that we would be pushing back a Taliban stronghold to allow the convoy to come through our area of operations, as we call an AO. And um, we would set out under the cover of darkness, patrol through the night, set up at the Taliban stronghold, and then at first light attack them uh, and push them back to allow the convoy to come through. Uh, unfortunately, we fell into problems straight away before we even left the base. Um, just before we were just about to leave, um, patrol minimised was called, meaning that no patrolling could take place in the whole of Helmand province. Um, an IED had gone off and hit a um, uh, an Estonian call sign dealing with mass injuries and all the medical assets had to deal with that particular situation. So right. no other patrolling could take place. And then uh, we was actually kept in um, the camp and we thought, okay, we're in for a night. It gives us a chance to... Um, rehearse better, get the yep. blokes ready. We can get extra weapon systems in. So it gave us a bit more time to get um, prepared because a lot of these things are sort of last minute, yeah. get out there and get it done sort of thing. So we thought, right, as a commander's point of view, we're in, we're rehearsing, we can practice, uh, make sure the guys have got everything drilled in. Um, four o'clock in the morning, it came down that patrolmen and wise have been lifted and that our patrol would go ahead. Um, now for me as a commander, our biggest problem was it was soon to be light. Yeah. Um, moving 120 guys through the desert um, is quite hard work. Even parachute regiment soldiers, where we're kind of known for carrying lots of weight on your back, yeah. carrying uh, big distances in short time because of the IED threat and because of the mine threat, um, things are slowed down much, much more. The guys are using metal detectors and on their hands and knees looking for these devices. So mm. everything is slowed down a lot more. And um, we were told we were going out, so we had about an hour's left of darkness to come, to go. We had about 10 kilometres that we had to sort of cover in that sort of time wow. as well, which normally wouldn't be a problem, but like I say, because the IED and mind yeah. threat was huge. So we set off um, into the desert, and then straight away we have a, a radio system called ICOM scanners, which scans um, the Taliban only use sort of local walkie-talkies, all that sort of stuff. And uh, we we got interpreters that can listen to it then translate to us what's going to happen. So they've said that we're on the ground, they're getting into position to attack us. So they knew we was out. We'd lost the element of surprise that we right. planned, obviously, go out of darkness and hit them at first light. Um, the order came down that we would take the village on a full frontal attack. And my section, so my eight-man team and my platoon were the initial breaking section into this village that the Taliban were, were um, held up in. Um, straightforward textbook stuff. We gained, gained entry into the first building. Um got my guys onto a rooftop and it's quite an eerie feeling. You kind of see the locals that don't want to be involved, mm. kind of drop the shovels, move to one side of the village. And like the Taliban would say to them, get out, you know, if you don't want to fight, move over there. So, yeah. you know, so it's like a big combat indicator something's going to happen. Yeah. And you see then see sort of young fighting males running into sort of like tree lines ready to attack you. So it's very kind of, you can see it all unfold sort of thing. Um, I moved the guys into the compound. I took my machine gunner. Uh, onto the ledge uh, of this compound and as we poked our head over the top we came under fire from a tree line um, I've got a bit of kit that tells me how far from where I am to where the enemy is mm -hmm. uh, which came back as 34 meters so it was pretty close wow uh, and of all the firefights I've been involved in it's probably the most fierce firefight I've been involved in you know, the wall was just getting absolutely hammered from oh, this wow. tree line with the amount of firepower that was coming down at us but um, called the rest of the machine guns onto the ledge. They then started to engage into the tree line. So as we 
call it, we were what we call winning the firefight, meaning we was putting more rounds onto them that was coming onto us, which then gave us us the upper hand and we can then control the the situation. Um, Another platoon decided they were going to flank round and then take the tree. And so from a textbook point of view, everything was going straightforward. We'd done it time and time again, um, straightforward platoon attack. So that was all unfolding. Um, Behind the front line, about 20 metres away, you have the command officer for our company, he kind of sits back, controls what's going on, gets read back what's happening on the ground. And with him, you have um, an artillery officer. Um, you also have fast air, so guys, all the planes, everything. That's all controlled from where the command officer of the, for the company is. Yeah. Uh, and the artillery officer came on the radio at that point and he said, uh, artillery is going to come down in, in five minutes onto that tree line. Uh, now, artillery, without going into too much detail, um, the killing radius of one round is 50 metres. Right. So we was well inside that killing radius. Of in that range? Minutes. Yeah, we're in that range. of you know, If we're, anything's going to come up, we're going to get hit with our own stuff. Uh, you can do what you call danger close, but we were well within that danger close um, bracket. So uh, I, I came on the radio and said, do not fire. We are 34 metres away from the point of contact. Yeah. You've got troops moving forward. Yeah. Uh, everything's going all right. We're happy as we are. Two other corporals came up on the radio, said exactly the same thing. Do not fire. Yeah. We're, we're assaulting now onto the position. So between the three of us, it was like at least 30 years experience on the ground of, of soldiering. And we kind of knew what we were doing. You and know. you were very clear by the Very clear, yeah. yeah. And um, it went quiet for a couple of minutes. We carried on with a firefight, thought, you know, typical officer. I was like, yeah, cheers, you know, shut up. <laughs> Let us do our job sort of thing. <laughs> And he came back on the radio a couple of minutes later and he said, uh, get your guys' heads down, it's going to come in close. And uh, before, Despite you saying not despite to. Despite saying anything. And uh, before I had a chance to like find out what's going on, you heard the guns fire, which sit about a mile away in the desert. You hear the boom, boom, boom like that. And then the first one landed behind us. I first felt, when the first one landed, um, I thought we'd been outflanked by the Taliban. I thought they that somehow got in behind us and were trying to like, use their rocket propelled grenades, of course, RPGs. because you didn't think they would do it. Yeah, because nine times out of ten, when they hit you in a firefight, they'll hit you from 360. So they'll draw you in, and then they'll hit you from the flanks and things like that. So it's a um, very well-planned attack when they do hit you. And uh, I thought they'd, I thought they'd so got in behind that. us, and I thought, oh, you know, what's going to happen? It wasn't until the second one landed between us and the tree line that I realised it was our own, our own artillery. And uh, all the shrapnel and all the uh, mud came back. Um, actually hit my one of my machine gunners in the arm, which severed his arm, took his arm clean off. Um, hit my second in command and also my best mate, hit him in the head. I thought he was dead the way he dropped and hit the floor. I thought he'd killed him outright. Um, he actually survived with a, a nasty traumatic brain injury. But um, at the time, I thought he was dead. So then I said to the guys, everyone off the ledge, get into hard cover. Because yeah. um, I also had three like, guns firing. Yeah. So there was a third one coming in. And then jumped down inside the compound. And these compounds aren't like got roofs on, they're just four walls. And then within inside that compound... You have like a little staircase that goes onto a ledge. Right. So you can look over the top uh, and a couple of rooms with inside the compound as well. So we've jumped down inside. Uh, I got behind what I thought was quite decent hard cover. Yeah. And then the third one landed on the other side of the wall, say, to where me and you are. Yeah. And then came through the wall and uh, hit me. <gasps> um, so, yeah, that's where I was uh, at that point. So uh, round's gone off. I didn't hear the bang. I just woke up and uh, everything was all dusty. I was about 10 foot from where I was once kneeling against the wall. I'd been it thrown so me back thrown in. You. Yeah, it thrown me back into the compound and um, everything was dusty and it's that typical sort of, you know, ringing in your ears. Mm. You can kind of hear voices going off and shouting and, you know, I was just sort of like really disorientated what was happening. And then um, looked at the wall where I was where I was kneeling and it looked like someone had got a water pistol and just blood all up against the wall. 
So I was just like, Gosh. oh, wow. And then uh, I then looked down, didn't feel anything, looked down and then uh, saw my foot had gone. And then my foot, my boot was actually sitting over by the wall where I was kneeling. And I just went, wow. You know, sort of like, I always tell people like, you know, when you, when you cut yourself and you cut yourself deep, it's just white. Yeah. There's no blood at first. Yeah, is yeah. It? And that's what my leg was like, it was just pure white. white. And you could just see the muscles sort of like twitching and that. Um, it wasn't until my rifleman come over and was like, Mike, look at your arm. And then I sort of looked up and I already had my arm up in the air and looked up and my fingers were down, sort of touching my elbow. Oh, crikey. So I knew I'd been hit. I'd been hit pretty bad. And I was kind of struggling with the breathing. I looked at my body armour and like that was all covered as well. Yeah. Um, so body armour had done a good job. I mean, my biggest worry was I thought, because um, I carry all my hand grenades oh, on, my, on my body armour, on my chest. So my biggest worry was thought a grenade was going to go off. Yeah. Or my smoke grenade was going to go off, yeah. which has got phosphorus in it, oh, which is... Do not get one of you hit by one of those. You know, mm. it's definitely a bad day at the office. You get hit by one of those. And uh, <laughs> I like the way that, that losing your arm and your leg at this stage isn't yeah. a bad day. But yeah, it's but yeah, even that could worse. Just make, that could just make it even worse. Yeah. So um, yeah, and then I, I, you know, my weapon was completely broken. I, I find it. I kind of felt quite vulnerable at that point because I couldn't defend myself. Well, yeah. Um, my boot was over by the wall with my foot in it, and my arm wasn't working. So first thing I thought about was I need to like. I was worried about something else coming in. So I'm thinking I need to crawl, get into some sort of cover. It's kind of a thing you always get taught. You're always looking for places to get so into you were, cover. So you were having these train, these thoughts you've been trained about, yeah. despite yeah. being disorientated yeah. with limbs missing. Yeah. You, you just, were thinking about all these things. Definitely, yeah. You're just thinking wow. about getting into hard cover and, you know, because you don't know what's going to come over next. No, you know? no. So it's survival, um, very much survival, yeah, but with help from training. That's it. And uh, mm. I actually saw uh, our medic. Um, he was sitting like an archway and he wasn't our usual platoon medic. Our, our platoon medic was actually gone back on his R&R, &R, rest and recovery, get two weeks sort of off during the tour. Right. Where it works out about 10 days time with the flights and everything else. But he'd gone back on his leave. Um, so they actually sent a medic um, from brigade who didn't have much combat experience. You know, mm. he, he was a trained medic, but not that sort of combat experience. Oh. And I remember just looking at him and he was in more shock than what I was. He was stood in this archway, just shaking, holding a first field dressing and a tourniquet in his hand. And um, I just remember just hearing his footsteps and one of my riflemen ran over, punched him in the face and his words were, what fucking good are you to us? Oh. And then like looked at me and I'm still trying to crawl away. And I remember him saying, going, where are you going? And it just, just sat on me. And I realised then how badly my ribs were broken because um, oh, he sat on me. I just felt all the air leave me like this. And I thought, oh, my God. And obviously, where the shrapnel would hit me in the chest plate um, saved my life. But um, all my ribs had been hit pretty bad as well. So so, so for the benefit of those don't, why was he stopping you move? Because he didn't. He just wanted me to control me. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, obviously, a big thing, shock, disorientation. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to treat a casualty like, you know, they're... they're don't know what's going on whatsoever. Yeah. Even if they're talking to you, you've got to literally... You, you, know, to, you can't assume that they are. No, you just, and especially um, with frontline soldiers, um, the, the first thing they want to do is carry on in a fight. You know, I've been in situations where guys have lost fingers and things like that, and Still they're trying, they're trying to pull the trigger, and they're like, mate, you've lost your finger. Like, stop. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so he was just controlling it, being what he doing, taught, what I'd taught him to do was, you know, get on top of the casualty. First priority is obviously stop bleeding. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's tourniqueted the leg. This is your friend now, not yeah. the medic. This is my mate, yeah. The medic's, medic's just a quick medic. Medic's still um, sorting out a bleeding nose, I think, uh -oh. or whatever. Um, <laughs> he's doing his own stuff. Doing his own, yeah. So uh, first, first, first aid. aid, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my medic's, he's, my guy's treating me. Um, obviously, I can still hear what's going on the radio. I've got my earpiece in my ear still. Um, and uh, one of the other medics from other platoons heard what's obviously happened over the radio. And uh, he's run across 200 metres of open ground. <gasps> 
to get to me and the other two casualties as well because obviously there's three of us that are yeah. injured yeah yeah um, he's run across open ground to get to us so we can get fluids in yeah. get the bleeding under control and things like that and was, at this point I realised my mate uh, wasn't dead you know he's sort okay. of kicked back into life but completely disorientated typical sort of brain injury sort of stuff oh, and yeah. the other lad that had been hit in the arm obviously in a lot of pain just lost his arm quite high up as well yeah. um, but the medics and that were on top of him as well so um, obviously at this point we're at what we call combat ineffective, meaning we mm. can't continue with the fight because we've got three ca- casualties, oh, that's yeah. our priority. Yeah. But obviously the Taliban are sitting there going, they've just dropped their own artillery on themselves. This is great. They've saved us a massive effort. So they've, they've tried to then attack. Yeah, take on, advantage. Yeah, take advantage like we would do. And um, so another platoon then had to like come in front of where we were to like push them back to home. So despite being combat ineffective, the firefight's still going on, um, priority being three, ma- three major casualties. Um but the guys, they got on top of me to help, you know, morphine. Every man carries morphine on themselves. You have your own med kit on you. So you always okay. use the casualties med kit before you use anything else because of, you know, you might have multiple casualties. Wait sure. on, the, on the extraction, there's always a, a reason behind everything. So the guys used my own med kit, tourniqueted the leg, tourniqueted the arm, uh, gave me a lot of morphine. Uh, one of my new riflemen, though, um, came over and were clear as day. And for some reason at that point, they changed the morphine syrette, uh, the uh, the syringe for it. it used to be red end danger for needle purple end plunger so it kind of makes sense yeah yeah but the for so whatever reason they decided to switch it around that a red end was the plunger end and a purple end was the needle end so uh young private soldier is like flapping away i'm like oh, don't worry take your time it's all right and uh going to give me morphine and he's fired it into his thumb the wrong way around um oh, so he's yeah. then giving himself a big dose of morphine um which then because only the effects of morphine he's now then a casualty himself because he's no good to no one. Because well, he's, he's, he's useless, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So they wrote on my card. It's behind your plate. You carry a card, and they write everything down. What's what they've given you? What they've treated you? They wrote me down for three morphine, but I only had two because he had the other one. Oh no! So I'm diffy of a morphine like that. But anyway, they oh, sorted that all out, and then uh, then obviously the priority was to get me out of there. Yeah. Um, they couldn't bring the helicopter straight in because they would have just got it shot down. Yeah. Um, and on that helicopter, you know, you've got a full surgical medical team they can do everything on the back of that helicopter from open heart surgery can you know, they? oh yeah it's, I didn't it's, know that. it's right. kitted out on the back of the they call it a MERT so it's a medical emergency rescue team right. uh, they have special forces pilots on there so they can get into any situation like land this aircraft um, so on that back of the aircraft you've got people that are pretty much irreplaceable yeah, yeah. so to fly them into a hot zone yeah. and get shot down not one are you losing the aircraft but two you're losing it's um, not helping anyone is no. it? No. So the guys didn't obviously had to then carry me out of that situation to a safe zone where the helicopter could come into. So it, it meant sort of put me on a stretcher and carry me out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know from previous casualties, the priority is to get them out there as quick as you can. This is why, again, being sort of parachute regiment soldiers, you're kind of known for being hard, fast and aggressive when it yeah. comes to things like that. And uh, they had about a mile to get me out of there and they literally ran me out of there so quick. I mean, they, they did drop me at one point and I kind of saw what was left on my foot getting dragged through the mud. Um, oh, gosh. And they were like, picked me up and then they got to a, a fence and I would have done the same. They just literally just threw me into this stream and I'm sort of sat there sort of waist deep in water going, yeah, cheers, guys. And then someone's grabbed you around the back of the body armour and hoitch up the up the bank. But, um, but yeah, I didn't have a stopwatch or anything, but it took them to get me from the point of contact to the where the helicopter pickup point uh, was about just over a mile they said they had to cover it was just a mile a, yeah I mean, I'm not being rude but like you're not small are you I was I was about 16 stone then so I was bigger than what I am now wow um, and all my kit and everything as well obviously diffier leg but um, which is apparently 6 kilos for a lower leg um, but uh <laughs> 
Yeah, they uh, they got me out there in just under nine minutes. They got wow, me out. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, it's nice to see the guys. Just obviously the guys that you've trained to a very high standard. Yeah. Just get on with their job and get you out of there. I mean, it's a big shock for them to see their commander go down oh, and everything. Yeah. So, uh, but they got me out of there um, on this particular. Um, patrol the scots dragoon guards were our fire support group for this particular patrol so they sit in light armored tanks off to a flank so if worst case scenario they can then fire these their yeah. guns onto positions okay. and things like that if you're getting overrun so uh but they heard on the radio what happened and then they drove uh down the, the main supply route that runs through Hellman's called the 611 so it's not like the m1 it's no. just like a strip of sand oh, right, okay. but it's kind of you can get vehicles up and down it but it's riddled with mines from the russians oh. ieds that the taliban have put there yeah and normally it takes hours to clear 100 meters yeah. but yeah. these guys got in the tanks drove straight down it without even checking uh to get to the casualties me and the two others um and they the guys threw me in the back of their tanks that drove into the desert and then the helicopter was just coming in just as we pulled up and then yeah it was straight into the back of the uh, helicopter, Chinook helicopter, and like I say, I remember they just cut all your kit off, so yeah. you completely everything's completely off. And I remember um, when they cut my my uh, chest plate of my body armor off. Um, I remember the doctor sort of looking at, it, shaking his head, and then putting it next to me, and there was just bits of shrapnel sticking out, and it was still smoldering where it all hit. So it was good to see that the body armor had done Did its, its job. job. Yeah. But obviously my ribs were a bit of a mess, but that was the least of my worries. You know, it was. Um, and, you, and your face mind. looks like it never got got. Believe it or not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you had all your... So yeah, it kind of came up, but it did hit me in the head. Um, right. So when they took my helmet off as well, I, mean, I felt when I was getting carried out, I just felt this rubbing on my head. And um, they put me down. And then when the doctors took the helmet off, um, they put it next to me. There was this big lump of shrapnel, about two inches sticking on the top of the helmet. So it <sighs> hit me straight in the head. Like, so that had done its job as well. And a yeah. little bit just nipped through it. It was just like... Scratching. Scratching the head. So, yeah, so I was lucky, very, very lucky that the helmet done its job, body armor done its job. So you always mm. hear these horror stories that the kit's not right, but, yeah, it does it work was. and it did its job. Um, so, yeah, that was then um, in a helicopter back to Camp Bastion. Um, on there, they're obviously looking at the legs, stopping any bleeding. Apparently, um, the arm was more of an issue um, because right. that wouldn't stop bleeding. Um, and then they just, oh, I remember it was a big jab in the leg. Um, apparently, they gave me a big dose of ketamine. Right. How anyone takes that as a recreational drug, I have no idea. Because <laughs> I was literally clinging to the floor of the helicopter thinking I was going into the rotor blades. I was tripping my nuts off. <laughs> it was, I don't know how anyone does it on a Saturday night, honestly. And then um, they got me back to Camp Bastion. And uh, they like again, they put me on this ambulance. And, I, and apparently it makes you quite aggressive, ketamine does, which, does it, which, right, which okay. happened to me. They got me back to this ambulance and uh, it felt like everyone was looking down on me right. and I had like an oxygen mask on. I was going, what are you all looking at? And it felt like they were laughing at me. So I was getting oh, wow. quite nasty about that. And then... Um, but that was fun coming you down oh, those yeah, 16 well, stones with Yeah, it was exactly. Well, they got me into the triage room, so into the operating theatre. And apparently, I can't remember little bits, but I was going like, they have dropped a bomb on me. Yeah, <sighs> they didn't do their job properly. Apparently, I was trying to pull wires out. Oh. And in the end, apparently, the, the surgeon was just just like knock him out <laughs> shut him <laughs> just, up just get so yeah they, they, that was it so they, did, they um did an operation in camp bastion basically mm. just to take all the shrapnel out clean everything up assess yeah. what's been damaged um they woke me up um they're a bit sheepish with me and i said to the nurse i was like why is everyone being said you're a nightmare when you came in absolute nightmare and she explained us the effects of ketamine and everything okay. else i was like well I'm not normally like that i said no 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 it's quite normal you know yeah. so uh they said, right, your injuries are too severe to stay here. We're going to have to fly back to um, back to the UK um, to deal, with, especially with the arm, because we're not sure what's going to happen with the arm. Yet. Yeah. At this point, it was touch and go if I was going to lose the arm as well. Right. Um, 
So yeah, I was flying back to Birmingham, um, Sellyoke Hospital. So it was literally a C-130 uh, aircraft, military one. There's mm. loads of us getting loads of different casualties on there. Um, flying back to Birmingham Airport, and then it was um, ambulances were all waiting on the tarmac. Um, and then it was, yeah, it was straight into Birmingham, Sellyoke. And um, all, quite lucky there, you had the NHS um, doctors and nurses, but you also had Army, Navy, Air Force right. doctors and nurses. There was right, one ward that was dedicated to military, obviously now... Uh, you've got the Queen Elizabeth Ho- yeah. uh, Hospital, which has got a whole ward, which is de- dedicated yeah. to military. But at the time, they had only one sort of small area. Um, but the duty of care was just amazing. Um, I came in, and there's literally all these doctors and nurses around my bed, and this one wing commander from the RAF came in, and he was like, right, tidy that up, tidy that up, do that. And he said to this surgeon, um, smell his arm. And this guy oh. smelled my arm, and he was sort of like gagged, and he was just like, right, consent form, Possible lose the arm um, <gasps> this afternoon as well. And I'm just like... Is this all in front of you? You're yeah. conscious. I'm like, I'm, I am here. And I am here. Yeah, yeah. Bedside manner, no yeah. marks And he's that just one. like, yeah, you know, right, getting ready for surgery, off you go. Um, and that was that was pretty much it for the first sort of six weeks was in and out surgery. I couldn't tell you what day it was, what week it was. It was no. just in and out every day. More yeah. surgery, you know. Every time you've got you a bit of a break, you think, right, I can get something to eat or something. It was like, no, don't get him, don't let him eat. You know, oh. kneel by mouth back yeah. in again and it was just non-stop um, during that period I also got MRSA as well which is quite common because um, not because the hospital's dirty but because of the amount of trauma that you've sustained yes. in open wounds Yeah, I mean the hospital was very very clean I thought yeah. it was amazing but yeah. because of the amount of trauma that you've got that you're open to infection yeah. and uh, quite yeah. a lot of soldiers got uh, MRSA yeah, it's not going to be uncommon is it no so um, I spent a whole year there a year? I spent a year at Bohemian Oaks, mainly because of MRSA and stuff. You know, yeah. I, I came in at 16 stone uh, and I left uh, a year later just over nine stone. And yeah, I looked ill. Well, it didn't look like me well, at all. Well, you would, yeah. Yeah, completely different person. People didn't recognise me. But, it, um, you know, from there, I was down to Headley Court, learned yeah. to use a prosthetic. And then um, I was then, I had a medical board in 2012. And there was a big push to push... Um, military personnel out of the army, um, army, navy and air force. Obviously it's costing the taxpayer too much money to keep injured guys in. So to guys be it war related or sports injury, all these people that were downgraded were made to sit a medical board. Uh, I passed all the fitness on the prosthetic and everything, but they actually discharged me from my arm. Um, I would I'd do a weapon handling test. So, and, so sorry, just to interrupt yeah. you there. What strikes me with that um, is you know, basically, you've been somewhat let down, I would say, yeah. um, arguably, yeah. by your own country. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be um, awkward, but you're still wanting to go back and join the army despite that experience. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, obviously, I joined from a very young age. You know, I've been, I'd had other injuries from other tours and other train exercises, a lot of broken bones and stuff from parachuting and that. But yeah, you know, I thought at the time that, yeah, I can get back from this and everything. And I'd say I passed the fitness test, but. At the time, my arm was still having a lot more surgery done. Even though I'd been discharged from the hospital, I was still going back, having other operations done. And at the time, they'd cut all the tendons in my fingers, so my fingers weren't working at all. Oh. I was waiting for another operation, and they decided they, they knew they knew that. It's a bit of a, a bit, bit that made me most annoyed was they made me do a weapon handling test, just knowing full well I had no full use of my fingers. It. And for a trained soldier especially frontline soldier, and I couldn't even do the basic things like take a magazine off a weapon, mm. push a safety catch, pull the trigger. Mm. Um, that was a tick in the box for me that I didn't meet the minimum requirement needed. Didn't matter if cat badge or what, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a, a chef, a doctor, if you don't pass the basic requirements needed, which is the weapon handling test, 
um, you're not fit for purpose. So, and so did you not know that before you went in to try and get back in then? Yeah, I knew that, but I kind of thought as well, like, you know, come on, I can kind of do this. But yeah, I couldn't, the hand wouldn't even work. And it no. was just, uh, that was, you know, uh, that was the day that they said, right, you, you're going to be medically discharged, you know. So it was probably my worst day of my army career. Um, so would you say that day was worse than what, the day of the battle? I mean, it, um, it feels like you're more angry. Yeah, I mean, with regards to, you know, where I got injured, it was always a possibility that you're going to be injured. You know, yeah. prior to going on patrol, you know, guys used to laugh and joke, and it sounds pretty um, barbaric, but guys would be like, what would you rather lose, an arm or a leg? Yeah. You know, and when you when you come under intense enemy fire, the, the natural reaction of what most guys do is they start laughing, you know, because it's so overwhelming of what's actually of happening. Yeah. And you, you, the number, you know, half the time, you're not a full, you know, full platoon or a full section. You know, you've got guys that are injured, guys that have been killed, guys going back on rest and recovery. So you're still carrying all that kit and equipment yeah. for, say, a platoon. Um, but, you're, you know, you haven't got half the guys there. So, and they don't know that. The Taliban don't know that. So uh, no. you're, you're, you're always up against it all the time sort of thing. So guys deal with things in different ways. But, yeah, that you kind of, for me... You, you're going to go somewhere, there's a high possibility you're going to be injured, be mm. killed, mm -hmm. or something's going to happen. Um, but I didn't expect, you know, if it was a chance for me to get back in again, I didn't expect them to say, right, today you've got a weapon handling test, despite you've got no tendons in your fingers. So uh, Yeah, because of course, your you, actual, um, yeah. it hadn't been completed, had it had all the surgery, yeah. so they wouldn't, so, they wouldn't know that, yeah. that it, would, it wouldn't work at that time. Yeah, so yeah, and that's the point, they, yeah. prom they promised me, they said that, you know, we'll wait till you're fully repaired. But it, it was going on and there was so much stuff going on. I mean, considering the arm was completely nearly gone without yeah, at the yeah, scene, you yeah. know, to then all the uh, rehabilitation, the operations that I had, you know, they did a very good job reconstructing it. Yeah. Um, but if it had waited another six months, but then by that point I'd been injured nearly two, three years. So I get it why they had to do it, mm. but I just thought it was quite, quite ruthless the way they mm. did it. But, mm. you know... But like I could say it shuts some doors, but it's opened up a lot of other doors as well. So yeah. So, so can I explore kind of because you've been, as I'd expect, very practical and brilliant detail over the physical. Sorry, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. Apologise. <laughs> no, that's absolutely absolutely right and, and appropriate. But on on the more pink and fluffy side of things, which is sometimes harder to talk about, actually, I'm interested in if you're comfortable talking about it emotionally the journey you had because I hadn't appreciated you were in rehab for as long as you were having all that happen to you. I mean, in, in even in the early days, so when, when you were miles away from anyone, you know, I'm guessing no proper support network nearby, yeah. with these devastating injuries, what what how were you? How were you managing things and handling things? What was your mindset at that time? Um, so when, it, when I first got back to the UK, it was... Um, um, Obviously, been injured before on, on, on other opera, other tours and stuff. So when it's yourself, you kind of think, right, you know, this has happened. But I, I can't completely get it. if it's someone you care about. Obviously, you care a lot more about them, sort of thing. So mm -hmm. because it was me, I kind of felt right. This has happened. I kind of got to just get through it. You know, been injured before. You know, get that mentality and get it all back, sort of thing. Yeah. But um, when I came back, I was expecting our welfare system would have contacted like my family and everything like that, and they hadn't. Oh. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't until 
a charity came up um, and we said, right, we're here, you know, anything you need? I said, oh yeah, I'd love a toothbrush, please. I haven't brushed my teeth in about a week. Oh. I've been out of hospital. So that'd be great. And they were like, okay, do you not want a phone? I went, oh yeah, if you've got a phone, that'd be good. So they gave me a mobile phone. I would, um, would I take it yours was blown up? Was it all left down? No, I did, well, I did not have to take a phone with you because obviously they can oh, tap into it. So that's it, me so, being yeah. really naive. Right, of course. So no mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. When you come back to the UK, you're literally wrapped up in a full blanket. That is it. It's just you. And that comes back. You wow. Know, so it's like... All my kit's still out there. You know, the guys would have robbed it all probably. Took anything that's good out of it. You know, so yeah, I was quite protective. I'll have that. We'll have that. Oh, look, Mike's dumbbells are over there. I thought, so uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, all my kit was all left out there. Um, but it was literally me and a full blanket that came back. So I had nothing. Um, so they were like, do you want a phone? I was just like, yeah, I'm going to call my dad. And then uh, obviously I told him two weeks before, because out there you do have like a satellite phone yeah. and you get 40 minutes a week that you can call back and stuff. And uh, the, the delay is always like a second delay. And uh, so I come with this mobile and he's just like, oh, you sound really clear. I was like, oh, have you not been told? He's like, told what? So I'm back in the UK. And he's like, oh, what's happened then? I said, I've been blown up. I said, I've lost my leg. Um, might be losing my arm. Don't worry though. I said, he's like, what do you have? He's like panicking. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah. they're sending um, welfare drivers down to pick you up. I said, it's a pack a bag. You know, you're going to hotel up here. So that was all the charity. Oh, they, wow. they, they sorted that all out. My own regiment were rubbish. And I'm quite open about that. At least well, then I can tell. Yeah. They were really rubbish about it. Um, they, it took them about a week to even come up to me. And then when they did come up, they were kind of like, well, I said, you know, what have you done? And all the rest of it. So that was. Why is that? Do you think? Um, I don't know. I kind, of, I kind of look back now and think, right, they've got 800 blokes to think about, you yeah. know, and there's a lot of guys on the ward as well. Some guys need that extra support more than others. Uh-huh. And they must have saw me and just thought, oh, yeah, we know what he's like. He'll be all right. He'll be all right sort of thing. So they can't, but you don't know that, you know. Okay, right. My whole world just come, come apart and yeah. um, they just assumed that I'll just get on with it sort mm. of thing. So, uh, yeah, it was quite, quite bad. But I look back now and I think, well, you know, there's guys out there, they're having to sort things out. There's other com- um, compassionate um, reasons, you know, um, guys having com- you know problems back at home, parents passing away, illness, all that sort mm. of thing. So they're having to get mm. guys back and things for that. So mm. I was one guy out of 800 to 1,000 guys that I had to worry about, really. So mm. I kind of get that now. But at the time, I was just like, well, this is about me. Mm. Why no one do nothing about me? Of course. So, yeah. yeah. And were, were you... Yeah, how, how was your mood overall, would you say, during that period? Uh, I was quite angry because yeah. of what had actually happened to me. Um, yeah. The officer that called it in um, prior to injuring me, he'd done two other quite big mistakes um, on, on that tour. Uh, one being taking a photograph in an ambush at night time, compromising an ambush. Oops. And a second one unloading his guys, despite myself telling him, that one of his guys still had a loaded weapon and that soldier nicked uh, the discharge of his weapon. Um, I even told him then, said, boss, you're either going to kill someone or you're going to hurt someone. And two weeks later, he blew me up. It so, was you. So, yeah. Um, so I was quite angry about that. Um, and he used to call me up from Afghanistan to my hospital phone, like pretty much in tears, going like, I'm sorry. And I was like, you shouldn't be talking to me. You know, it's kind of a bit of a dodgy situation. Plus, yeah. you know, I don't know what I'm saying because I'm anaesthetic and everything else that I'm going uh, through. Course. So uh, There's definitely a trust issue there. Then, yeah. yeah. And uh, the minute I, you know, I kind of like close ranks on myself because um, I know when these types of situations is, it's always like people try and cover their own back sort of thing. So mm-hmm. for me, it was that, right, I need to be careful what I say, you know, yeah. everything else. So, um, yeah, then I sort of got, you know, with the charities that are there, you know, they had different 
uh, sort of legal representation they're saying like don't do this don't do that mm -hmm. don't sign this don't do this so that was all taken care of for me so it's one less thing to worry mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. so yeah yeah okay. so it feels like a lot of the, you know anger was a, quite an overriding driving emotion at that time yeah i mean the other thing as well i mean because of the, the regiment i served with you know if i'd have shot that officer by mistake you know if he'd have run across me in a firefight yeah. and not knowing that i was there and i had to shot him uh, because of the cat badge and the regiment i served with um, I would have been on the front page of the Sun. And it would have been paratrooper shoots officer. Yeah, and I would have been hung out to dry for it. So, yeah, I, I kind of I was I was quite angry about that. Definitely, mm -hmm. just for me, no one was killed that day. You know, all yeah. three of us are, have got on with our lives and That's good. got through the other side of you know some very complex comp uh, injuries and that. So, sure. uh, yeah, you know, I think there is closure at the end of everything. So, in in terms of the the positives, then, because because obviously you, you've come a long way from been sort of stuck in that hospital to, to your life now yeah. and, and what you do what what would you say fueled your transition from potentially being a victim not going anywhere not doing anything to to where you're now we'll explore obviously what you're doing now but yeah. what, what what was your thinking around that and what what was your focus so i mean like i said i was i was stuck in bed for a long time because it was um the other leg was broken as well um so i was stuck in bed for a very long i was like three four months in bed couldn't get up couldn't Crazy. do anything and at this point obviously they're chopping bits off your body elsewhere to then repair another area so that's then another injury that's been inflicted sort of, of course, and they always yeah. the hospitals always say oh it's spare like nothing's spare. Do you know what I mean? But it's, uh, you don't need that bit. We'll just move it. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty much it. And you like, then you wake up and go, oh my God, that's in so much pain. So, uh, oh. um, but I kind of get all that. But during that time, that year I spent there, there were soldiers coming in every single day, you know, and there was guys missing two limbs, three limbs, mm. guys that have got all their limbs, but are never going to be able to walk again, yeah. never be able to use their arms again. You know, guys that have been hit in the head, massive brain injuries, you know, guys that come in burnt. I mean, horrendously burnt yeah. disfigured and just the screaming it used to, it used to cut through like hearing these guys screaming right and these doctors and nurses would put like these wet like jelly gauze on them to try and cool oh, the skin down and they'd, they'd just soak them up within seconds and, just, oh. and it's just like you literally sat there going i can you know I'm, i think i'm having a bad day these guys are literally like in pain 24 7 yeah. so it's kind of then it was my kind of a one morning i woke up and said right you need to kind of start feeling sorry for yourself like what you've got, okay, you've lost your lost your foot, but you've got your knee there. You know, watching the guys that were above knee yeah. or doubles that were trying to walk, you know, without a knee and things like that, and the rehabilitation they had to go through to do that. You know, yeah. whilst I was still in bed, I couldn't do anything. Watching them trying to, you know, just sweating, getting off their bed sort of thing, you know. So I just thought, all right, your arm's pretty messed up and you've got no leg or no foot, um, but you still can do a lot of things. So... Yeah. Started doing like exercises on my bed, um, you know, even just trying to pull myself up, just trying to get that strength back. So when it came to the time of right now, it's your turn to wear a prosthetic or now it's your turn yeah. to stand up for the first time. wasn't such a big shock. And I kind of used the other guys, sounds pretty bad, but misfortunes to then mm -hmm. kind of make myself stronger and make myself, you know, think, you know, all right, you're having a bad day, but look at him next mm. to you. You know, he's got half a face, you know. No, so. I, I, I don't think it's bad. I, th I think what, what you're doing is saying, do you know what? It, it's, it's how you're phrasing the world for you. Yeah. And what you're going is actually, yeah, this isn't ideal. Yeah. But it could be a lot worse. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I don't think there's anything bad in that. I, I don't think you're saving their misfortune. What you're doing is being grateful for what you actually do have. Yeah, definitely. You know, and for me also, you know, the fact that I'm, um, mentally strong as well you know, I've not suffered with um any mental health you know post-traumatic stress and things like that and there's, there's guys 
that have um, not been in physically injured. But yeah. like for me, the day that I was injured, um, the guys, you know, one of the one of one of my riflemen, um, he had severe PTSD, and what gave him it was um, seeing his commander, his corporal get taken down and him thinking mm. how if he's gone down mm. how am I going to get out of this mm. situation and he felt like he'd lost control yes of the situation because he'd seen his like commander yeah. go down and thought how am I going to get out yeah. of this and it completely turned his world upside down and, yeah. you know and he says you know alright we all got out safe yeah but he has nightmares of you know the situation being much different yeah and uh, so yeah that's really effective and I can kind of see that you know seeing someone you know very well get injured yeah. uh, or, or killed and yeah. then um, always feeling that guilt for it as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's interesting that you use the word control because I've talked in previous podcasts about the importance of control. Even yeah. for myself, when I was ill with my breast cancer, that, that having a path or a plan that you could own and control, yeah. so important. And definitely. was that the same with you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I didn't set massive goals. You know, it was right. always small goals. Right, today you're going to sit up on the edge of your bed without feeling dizzy. Right, yep. today we're going to try and you know grip this tennis ball three times using your fingers so it was just little goals each time once wow, i achieved okay. that now what else can i do but you know still go back to doing that still go back to doing this you know, and it kind of built me up it's like and it small was, wins really yeah definitely you know sometimes it might not be very much and other times you think wow i never thought i'd do do that sort of thing so yeah. uh yeah it was um small small goals all yeah. the way through i never thought you know Right, this time next year, I'm going to run the London Marathon or anything like that. It was always no. just chip away um, yeah, yeah. each each thing. Sort and, that, of and that's so. brilliant. So you know, the use, yeah. use of goals as a motivator, essentially. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and did you have any role models throughout the course of this? Or do you, were you very sort of self... Um, I, I, my role models were people around me. Right. Watching them progress, you yeah. know, watching guys, you know, get up and walking or, you know, get to the end of their discharge and actually walk out of that hospital. And I'm thinking, that's what I want to do. I yeah. want to walk out of here with a jumper on, a pair of trousers on, and no one even know what's happened to me. Yeah. You know, which is some of these guys, you know, who were doing it. And I just thought, you know, that's amazing. Yeah. So I used, yeah, I used people around me, other soldiers as, as my, um, you know, if I was having a bad day thinking, oh, Private Smith over there, he, he did amazing the other week, you know. Yeah. Used his energy to yeah. make myself feel better. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And in terms of... We've talked before about sort of the role of physical fitness and and, and mental well-being and, yeah. and the, the two being a system. Yeah. Um. Obviously, you're 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 a PT. Yeah. And you're a boxer, <laughs> and yeah. you fight able-bodied and win. I might add. Yeah. Um, boxers in the ring. Yeah. So so for you, you know, what, I, I'm leading it, but what role has it played and does it play and will it continue to play? Yes, I mean, like I say, I mean, um. Training um, has been a big part of my life. Even before I was injured, you know, yeah. it's always been like the best I can ever be. You know, when it was doing all, you know, our ten mile tabs and things like that. You know, always be the fittest, the strongest I could be. Yeah. And I used that as part of my rehabilitation as well. You know, it was kind of right. You know, before I was injured, it was lifting quite big weights and stuff, and I couldn't even lift a bar when I first came yeah. back. And I just thought, well, I'm never going to do this. And I think, you know, a lot of people think because it's hard, um, I ain't going to bother doing that. Or the doctors tell you, you know you can't do this and you can't do that. And again, I think that's why it's so important to set small goals rather than, than big goals, you know. And uh, I've used all that all the way through my rehabilitation to to get where I am today, you know. And it's um, going back to weightlifting, going back to boxing again and things like that. All right, I've had to make some adjustments. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's worked and uh, that's what's really got me where I am today. So uh, it's just, you know, if something hurts me 
or I, don't, I find it uncomfortable, I just change it, you know, to make it suit me. So, yeah. Yeah, because you've got lots of different prostheses to use, haven't you? Got 12. 12? 12, yeah. <laughs> got more, more legs and fit shoes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it got pretty much every type you could think of. So wow. Yeah. So so yeah. go on, run me through the different um, things that so they allow. Two everyday ones, obviously they give you one normal and one is a spare in case one breaks. Yeah, so I've got yeah. two which I cast as like everyday legs. So you, on those legs you can kind of like if you need to jog to the bus stop sort of thing or just you know everyday uh, stuff up and down stairs if you're at work sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I've got running blades. Um, got a leg specifically for boxing, mm-hmm. a leg specifically for leg training for training legs for weights. Uh, skiing leg a swimming leg um i've even got a pirate leg as well which a i use yeah, which i use for fancy dress ones so uh, <laughs> yeah that was quite funny Fantastic. so yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah i got that as well so pirate leg. proper pirate leg yeah i actually got once asked to be a uh, an ambassador for the national pirate association you once. did I not did, yeah. well you've got the beard as well got the beard actually for it now, but yeah at the time i didn't have a beard at the you've time you've not got a parrot home yeah. have you well when i got injured the guys actually that when they came out from afghanistan the first thing they gave me was a uh, pirate hat and a plastic parrot <laughs> oh. so that's like the guy's mentality yeah no i know it's sort and of, my yeah, platoon yeah. sergeant actually presented me my boot he gave, bought my boot in, obviously minus the foot. The foot was gone. <laughs> uh, but God. yeah, he gave me the gave me my boot, and uh, I still got it. Um, oh, you still got the boot. Still got the boot. Um, wow. And to me, to see that was just unreal. I mean, it was like the front of it, not a scratch on it. The heel and the back of the boot was completely blown out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, the shrapnel took it off above, straight above the boot. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, to see the actual boot itself, and I was just said to my platoon sergeant, I was like. How long have you carried that around for? He's like, oh, the last six weeks. So, uh, yeah, oh. he goes, uh, want to give you this back? So, yeah. Wow. Is, uh, so, yeah, I've got that. It's quite a momentum It's like a little trophy. It is, yeah. So, uh, I've got that. So, uh, just to sort of show everyone, that, you know, how bad it all was and everything. So, uh, yeah. And um, in the rinks, obviously, I know you, you're pretty good at boxing. Um, what sort of reactions do you get from, quotes able-bodied competitors um so one of the biggest problems i get is when i when i uh go to a, a show and to compete is find an opponent because um some boxers are like i don't want to beat a guy with one leg right and other guys are like i don't want to lose to a guy with one leg of course right you know, yeah. which i can completely understand right and then you get boxers as well that are just like if he steps in here he's obviously wants to box so yeah. Win or lose, it's two guys toe to toe in a boxing match, you yeah. know, and it's uh, best man wins sort of yeah. thing. So, yeah, it's quite. And when you go on some of these shows, the, the promoters as well just like don't don't know how to treat it, they don't know what to do or yeah. how to deal with it, and you know, you have to kind of reassure them and tell them that the the um, how a prosthetic works and it's not going to fall off in the middle of a fight or this isn't going to happen. Yeah, that's okay. kind because of, they're like, oh, you know, what happens if you trip and fall and you know, all the rest of it. Oh, wow. So uh, yes. obviously they don't want to put a disabled fighter on their show and then uh, gets falls over and breaks mm. the prosthetic and everything. So I kind of get all that. Mm. But um, the more I've done, the more people accept it. And it's mm. now encouraged like other amputees that I know into boxing Great. Um, to compete or just do the training side of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's been my whole goal throughout this, just showing people that anything's possible. Yeah. You know, even if you've got to try and regress things slightly or change things around, you know, to suit that particular sport, for example, yeah. that you can do it. You know, I was told so many times that doctors, physios, prosthetic centres that you can't do this or... Oh, really? never be a, Yeah, a lot of the time, you know, and again, I kind of understand that. It's the whole, um, you know, if I was a doctor and I told you like, all right, Helen, you know, 
you're going to be, you've broken both your legs, you're going to be running in two weeks' time, and you're not, mm. you're going to be like, mm. well, you told me to, you'd be running mm-hmm. in two weeks. So mm-hmm. I kind of understand that they kind of say, don't think your running days are over or mm. you're never going to be able to do this again. I kind of get that because mm. for me, it was just like, well, I'm going to show you that I can sort of thing. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was kind of, that helped me um, to, to always prove them wrong. You know, mm. and my surgeon stuck with me all through my arm surgery. He was like, because of you pushing yourself, yeah. we can now do more advanced surgery to get more out of your arm to do this because you're actually not just having the surgery and that's it. You're doing all the rehab that goes with that, you mm-hmm. know, to get the most out of that particular surgery. Now we can now do this for you. Now we can do that. So yeah. that, that helped me a lot um, doing that. But yeah, a lot of the time, you know, it was, uh, you know, especially prosthetic centers and that the physio would be like, well, you know, you shouldn't be going up and down stairs or you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, I want to live my life as normal as I can. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. It's interesting the role that they play, isn't it? Because this really resonates with a chat I had with Ben, who I've mentioned to you. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just very similar in the sense of that this, I am going to do what I can. And it's about what I can and overcoming yeah. rather than condemning oneself to going, I can't. Yeah. And, 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 and it's interesting that those people, had you absorbed their feedback and yeah. advice, which is probably very well placed yeah but actually for you it wasn't the right advice no definitely not you know i mean it was like you know at the time i was working in london you know and then the physio was saying like well how do you get up the stairs in the underground i'm like i walk up the stairs and he's like you shouldn't be doing that i was like so i'm supposed to go rush hour yeah take my leg off sit on a step put my prosthetic on my lap and then shovel up down the those set. mingy steps yeah. In, yeah. in rush hour, I said, that's not happening, you know? And she's like, well, you shouldn't be going to London with your job. They should be working from home and everything, which obviously we are now. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yep. at the time, I was just like, no, you know, I want to live a normal life. So I kept, I kind of wound her up a little bit. You know, the next time I turn up on a motorbike, and she'd come, <laughs> she'd come running out the door going, what are you doing? And I'd just be like, what, well, I'm, I'm legal to drive a motorbike. I've done an assessment. I've passed it. Yeah, you're um, safe. So, you know, I've changed the rear brake. I've insured everything else. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all good. You know, the next day I'd turn up on my, on my mountain bike and she'd be like, <laughs> what are you on a mountain bike for? And I'd be like, well, she's like, why, why, why can't I be? And she's like, what if you fall off? And I went, what if you fall off? And she's yeah. like, well, I don't ride a mountain bike. I said, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't ride a mountain bike. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it was always, yeah, backwards and forwards with some of the fears. And I kind of get it, but also it gets to a point where the patients can get wrapped up in cotton wool too much yeah. and they, they start telling themselves that maybe I can't do that. You know, because they're telling me that. Yeah. And I think it's important that as much as you look after someone at the same time, you kind of give them a little bit to try things out themselves. So Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you've got to be careful because in terms of the scale, you with your, you know, 12 different versions of what you can do. Yeah. You know, we're not saying, no one's saying that that's what everyone should necessarily aspire to. No, definitely not. No, um, no. It's what suits you, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Everyone's different. Everyone's got their own goals and what they want to do. And it's just important that, you know, just go out and try things at least you know if you want to try something try it you know and if it's causing you a problem then you go back and get things sorted out but um you know i'm not sitting here saying right i want you to go go run out and no. join a boxing club or anything no. like that you know it's uh it's all about you know what you want to do you know so yeah and everyone has their own problems when it comes to trauma injuries you know be it mental health or physical so yeah it's just going with your own um what you can do yourself really yeah and and we've talked previously um, in all the podcasts around community which um, plays a key role in resilience. Did you feel that you had a strong sense of community post-injury? Uh, and how has that community changed over the years? 
Um, so the community um, within the um, sort of hospitals and that was was amazing. You know, I had, I had everything I needed again. Being sort of military, yeah. everything was there. You know, it was almost like going through a conveyor belt. You know, you get to a certain point and you get this given to you or this told to you. And then by the end of the time you finish your time in hospital and we got to medical discharge from the army, you know, you were good enough to go into civilian street. So yeah. I was very lucky to have all that literally given to me on a plate you know so by the time I left the armed forces I had CVs job interview techniques I was retrained qualified you know I went in at 16 years old you know I'd been school off um no GCSE so I had to do all that prior to leaving the armed forces you know maths English all that sort of stuff so that was all given to me um prior to being discharged I was very lucky there and then joining civilian street um, my transition was was very smooth. I was very lucky um, again with the support and the network that I had around me. You know, people always wanting to help and offer me work or just work experience or just get me out of the house. Right. You know, thinking right, I'm not going to let this guy just fester away in his own house sort of thing. Let's get him out and do this. So all the way through up until now, even today, people still wanting to sort of help within you know sort of the community around me. So yeah, um, I've been very lucky. Um, with people around me so yeah, yeah. but that, that's brilliant but I mean, the fact is you have to want to be able to go out and do those things in the first place as well definitely so about uh, you. and also this is like guys that haven't had injuries especially with the armed forces I mean it's the only way I can sort of relate to it really um, you know when they decide that right I've had enough of the armed forces it's not for me anymore I want to go to civilian street and they go it's supposed to go to a series of workshops again job interview techniques and everything like that and they're given a year that transition, which you don't get in the civilian street no. at all, you know, as a as a ex member of the armed forces, you know, you get a whole year mm-hmm. to look at a job that you want to do and then train towards that, and then the yeah. army then give you financial support wow. to get qualified to that point. Okay, and some guys um, will literally sit in their rooms. Now nah, do it tomorrow, do it tomorrow, do it tomorrow, and it gets like two weeks for the discharge. They're in mm-hmm. front of their command officer, and they're like, "Right, have you done this, this, and this?" Oh no, why not? Well, it's no excuse because it's all there for you, you know, but you've got to make the effort to go out there because it's such a big organisation. Yeah. You can't just expect someone knock on your door and go like, oh, Private Smith, here you go, you do your maths today. You yeah. have to go up and yeah. sign yourself up and deal with the rest of it. So, yeah, it's all down to to yourself to, to, to want out, to go out there and you've got to help yourself if you want other people to help you as well. Mm-hmm. Got to show, I think, show people that you're wanting to help yourself. Yeah. Then people want to help you as well. So, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in terms of looking ahead... What, what, what's the future going to look like for you, do you think? Oh, the future for me. Um, well, it'd be nice to get through coronavirus first, wouldn't yeah. it? That'd be, uh, yeah, I'll join you in that list yeah, if that's all right. It'd be nice yeah. to get a bit of normality. It'd be nice to get back. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just just keep on the path where I am now, you know, just keep um, trying new things. Obviously, got supposed to have a series of boxing matches that will happen prior right. to coronavirus. Got a big one, which is... Uh, ex-paras versus former Royal Marines. Ooh. Gotta make sure I say former Royal Marines because they don't call themselves ex-Royal Marines. So, oh. uh, <laughs> former, so, yeah, former, former. Thank uh, you, if you so, please. Yeah, ex, ex-paras versus um, former Royal Marines. Uh, that's going to be in Manchester. Um, but I've got to wait for the world to sort of go back to a bit of sure. normality yet. But that's going to be uh, a huge event. Um, you know, so... Um, at the moment, there's myself and another amputee who's parachute regiment. Yeah. Um, but there's no amputees from the Royal Marines that have come forward yet. So it looks like we're both boxing able-bodied Marines. So oh, I'm looking forward to it. You're going to be any, like, bring any, it on. Any excuse to punch a Royal Marine in the face <laughs> is uh, good enough for me. Listeners, so. we don't condone violence. No. However, <laughs> on an organised, safe exercise environment, it's okay. Yeah, and I'm definitely. sure you'll still manage to beat him anyway. So Yes, yeah. That's, that's the mindset of definitely going, hoping to get that win. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's what I'm, I've been training for. And, yeah, it's just, you know, um, just 
each day as it comes. Yeah. Obviously, prosthetics it has its problems. Of course. Um, pressure sores, you know, I can yeah. go weeks about none. And then quite recently, I had back-to-back pressure sores because the sockets... Do you want, do you want to just explain what they are and how they come about? Because not everyone will... Yeah, so um, with a prosthetic, um, you have to wear a liner uh, over your leg, uh, which is quite thick, uh, which is how you attach the actual prosthetic. Now, imagine uh, putting your foot in a ski sock and then wrapping your foot in a bin bag and then putting your trainer on. That's what it kind of feels like. Wow. So it's a good explanation, actually. Yeah, it gets quite hot, quite sweaty. And for me as an amputee, that's my biggest hindrance. You know, I don't suffer from uh, phantom pain too much. That's good. Um, yeah, really good. I'm very lucky. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um, um, I don't suffer from much else, but I do suffer from sweating quite a bit. Um, right. Main reason, bit they say, despite being an amputee, you still have the same volume amount of blood in your body. Right. Meaning your body doesn't realise that you're missing a limb, it's going to reduce so it its blood adjust. level. So that's why you see a lot of amputees cutting around, not because they want to show off their prosthetics, but their body temperature is much higher. Okay. And that's why you see them always in shorts and t-shirt all the time because of uh, their actual feel quite hot. Yeah, because it's quite warm for them. So, uh, right. But um, what happens is, because I get a, a sweaty leg, um, it doesn't matter how much I clean it, no. uh, you basically get a uh, blocked sweat gland. Um right. And it comes up like a big sort of boil, basically. But Oof. you can't squeeze it. I'm back in too much detail. Probably you know, people no, it's fine. eating and stuff like that. But um, um, you can't squeeze it. You can't yeah. lance it because it's a gland at the end of the day and it's just oh, blocked. Okay. So imagine as well with a prosthetic, it's a bit of plastic in the leg at the end of the day. That Imagine having a blister on your heel Ooh. and then that pushing yeah. all day long. That's what it's like with these pressure sores. And what you'll do within the socket, which is the bit that goes over the, over yep. the liner... Um, is that you compensate within the socket, so you start putting pressure elsewhere. So you recover from one, but then you get one Move elsewhere, it. so it's a bit of a knock-on effect. And the only way to get around it is literally not wear your leg. Right. Wear crutches. Yeah. Oh, sorry, use crutches yeah. um, and then get around and just rest it. But if you're like me, you work a job, you're up on your feet 10 hours a day, it's kind of finding those points when can you actually rest it, you know? And it's like, I don't want to just sit in my house for three weeks resting up sort of thing I know I probably should yes this isn't advice again this but, is yeah. not the way um, to treat it but yeah but I mean like you go and see the doctors and stuff and you know when it when you go to the local GP it's kind of they're not sure what to do with you the limb sensor like rest it so um, that's that's, um, that's that's your little challenge or that is challenge. yeah pressure sores are, are huge uh, if prosthetics aren't fitting properly so I had a, a nasty infection beginning of this year um, I fell over when I was on a ski trip I didn't actually fall over skiing I fell over in a shower um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I should do that. How many, how many vodkas had you had? I've uh, been a bit of a day session. But I'd fallen <laughs> over, I'd fallen over all day. Um, Just when you got but back. But when I got back to the hotel room, yeah, I fell over in, fell over in the shower, and I landed on the on the stump, and uh, my leg just blew up like a balloon, and it took ten weeks for it to heal. Wow. Okay. Um, I couldn't wear a leg for ten weeks, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was tough. You know, I couldn't drive, I couldn't do anything. Oh, yeah. I was just relying on people, which is wasn't which isn't my strongest point, you know. But um, no, that comes across. But I learned <laughs> to sort of think like people are trying to help me here, so just yeah, take just it. take it and you know. But um, but so yeah, um, when sockets aren't fitting properly as well, it's very very hard. I mean, again, being military, which a lot of amputees, uh, civilian amputees, will say that being military, you kind of get that extra bit of care because of the yes. MOD are paying in. Yeah, um, yeah. To give me, that's why I've got so many prosthetics because the MOD pays. Yeah, you're lucky in that sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, as a civilian amputee, you're lucky if you get an everyday leg and a wet leg or two two yeah. everyday legs. And if you're lucky, you might get a blade. If you was active before your yeah. um, amputation, um, you might yeah. get a blade. But if you weren't very active... They're reluctant to even give you a wet leg. So yeah. I can really see the frustration there with civilian patients not getting the back in 
like, you know, MOD patients do. I mean, I walk into my limb centre and it's almost like foot envy. You get people sort of look at you and go, where'd you get that from? And I'm oh, like, I'm ex <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm ex like, oh, one of them is it. So, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're, people are amazed at what you can sort of get and stuff yeah. like that. So uh, I am lucky in that sense with when it comes to sort of prosthetics and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, but yeah, um, considering what other guys suffer with, um, with regards to phantom pain, and, and other issues as well you know some people can't even struggle just putting the leg on so uh or yeah. an arm on so uh yeah yeah it's a, it's a minor thing that i have to deal with but it's a quite a big hindrance for me you know it means i yeah. can't do stuff but yeah mm -hmm. okay well there's, there's a lot of ground you've, that you, you've covered there so I, I like to give people sort of takeaway top tips that could could apply irrespective of injury or experience so what what would you suggest your top ones are and all the things you've talked about um, my top tips um, would be what from from injury sort of. Saying, well, from what uh, you've done, so you've I okay. mean you, you've talked about the goal setting. You've mentioned role models. You've talked about kind of what you're grateful for. Um, you talked about a lot of things. So what what sort of things? If someone was needing a boost or, or felt they were overcoming or trying to overcome a challenge, yeah, you know what what sorts of things would you encourage people to do? Or don't think my biggest thing. I think my top one would be don't push the people away around you that care most about you. Oh, that's you know, nice, yeah. It's uh, the people that are around you in your network, you know, your family, friends, wife, husband. That That is your key to success, I think, with, yeah. with injury. I mean, I pushed my parents away. I pushed the people that were closest to me away um, because I was kind of like, no, this is me. It's what I'm going to do. Don't need your help. And uh, looking back, you know, some of it was the medication that I was on at the time. Uh, and I remember, the, you know, especially my dad would leave the hospital after I've just literally showered it in for the last hour um and i think oh what have i done so i'd call him up and go look i'm really so he's like, no no it's fine it's fine Aww. and i just make a, a special effort to say right you know when he comes in this time it'll take 30 seconds and i'd be at him again you know yeah. he was kind of like my punch bag yeah and he, he took it he took every it. time and uh i looking back now without him me taking my frustrations out on him i think you know i would have been in a lot worse place sort of mentally so Top tip Aww. there would definitely be, you know, the loved ones around you that care most about you, keep yeah. them close because they're, they're the ones that are going to be there every time when you don't meet that goal or something changes on your path to get into where you want to be. They're the ones that are going to be like, come on, you know, it's another day. Mm. Just, you know, keep going along, keep going the way you are, you know. Mm. So you definitely need that support around mm. you. Um, also, I'd say um, listen to your body as well, you know. Yes. If your body... Or your saying, mind, or your fact. mind, yeah, yeah, your body and your mind. If you're both, you know, if your mind and you're feeling low, talk to someone. Don't just yeah. bottle it up inside. You know, there's so many people that want to help you yeah. out there. You know, it's with me. Um, I bottled stuff up for a long time. Um, How did I, you? Yeah, but I found talking about it, even doing things like we're doing today, yeah. it it kind of is like a release. Yeah. You know, it get, you feel like this whole weight come off your shoulders, just talking about you know your incident you know and my biggest problem was i always thought i bore people because i kind of bore myself really yeah yeah goodness me no, uh, you're not boring <laughs> I, I find i bore myself so i think oh god this person's probably boring i'm sitting there going like looking at their watch going like this oh god here we go again mike sob story sort of thing but uh, oh no don't be silly it's not people want to listen yeah people want to help um, so mentally, yeah, talking is is vital. I know we get told all the time, you know, these people are there to help, but just don't bottle up inside, you know. There's always someone out there who's the same as you or worse than you. Yeah. And that, like I say, through this whole thing, it's been my key to my rehabilitation is looking around that room on that ward and just seeing some of the 
pain and the problems that guys go through with different injuries yeah. mentally and physically and how they've got through that and that's mm. helped me get where I am today mm. um and my last one would probably be um after that would just be just setting those small goals you yeah. know chip away yeah keep going meet those small goals okay set yourself a, a bigger goal yeah in long term but go for those shorter goals yeah. and then you know you're not going to be disheartened so much if you don't make that bigger goal. It's those little ones, yes. you know, win those battles and eventually you'll win that war. Yeah. So I think uh, I think that is key um, yeah. to being, you know, going down that path. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. I love those because actually, you know, with this lockdown, we, you know, we avoid talking about it too much because everyone knows, but actually, you know, we've seen things like the suicide rates going yeah. up, particularly much men. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, something's happened locally with, with us that's really sort of brought this home. And yeah. you do think, you know, speak to someone and then the small goals if, if you're struggling as a person could be do a walk yeah it's a five minute walk out definitely door, or pick up the phone or send that message or yeah that sort of thing even though different world to what you experience yeah. is a traumatic injury yeah um but actually the principles are exactly the same aren't they definitely exactly and i say you know just picking up that phone is a huge one um yeah. you know i've had moments where i was like you know sat you know during lockdown one i was i was living in a gym and uh, it's just like, well, what am I doing here? So I just pick up my phone and I bring my mate, and he'll just be like, "Let me just put you on loudspeaker and go make a cup of tea." You know, like that. So uh, that that just helps, you know. And afterwards, you're just like, "Oh, I really needed that," you know. And yeah. I've been the same for other people, you know. Yeah. People have rang me up and said, like, you know, this has happened, that's happened. So uh, yeah, it's. I think it's very important, definitely. Brilliant. Mike, it's been fascinating and an absolute joy speaking to you. Your, your sense of humour. Luckily, my mum was a, a p- retired paediatric nurse and she had the same sort of darker sense of humour. So right. I was I could work with that. But I, <laughs> so I hope people have appreciated it. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so, so much. No, thank you for having me. Thank okay. you. Please like, comment and share and send us any questions at www.bushco.co.uk slash podcast.